talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Hello, and welcome at long last to a new episode of More Like the Worst Wing the podcast where here in Corin 2020, Boo. we take a look at Aaron Sorkin's seminal television classic, The West Wing, with a bit more of a leftist socialist bent. I am Stu. And I am Dave. And we are coming at you hard from what's basically between the two of us, the epicenter of the global pandemic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> here in New York. And I'm in Florida. <laughs> so We are going to be surrounded by... You know, death and destruction in the coming weeks, but we're not here to talk about that. We have far worse things to talk about, which is this episode of (laughs) The West Wing. Uh, It is entitled Stirred, um, which is, I guess, a reference to the fucking shaken, not stirred thing, which we're going to get into. Um, (sighs) uh, And it involves the main plot of the episode is a nuclear truck accident, a truck that is delivering nuclear waste uh, gets into an accident somewhere in Idaho, uh, mm-hmm. and it is, you know, all hands on deck, crisis o'clock, except not really. It, we don't see the White House go into as big a crisis mode as we have normally seen it go into. Uh, it's a relatively minor one, and it's handled kind of off screen for the most part. Yeah, there's a lot of talking about it, but there's no... Um, no like action. Ex- there's no action or or even talk of, of action it. really. Just a lot of talk yeah. of like gathering together, like oh, get the energy secretary and blah blah blah. Um, I kind of want to open with the cold open though, real quick before we dive into it. So we cold open on uh, the the previously on episode tells us of the Alcoholics Anonymous meeting that VP Hoyne set up and that he invited Leo to. That involves, you know, very high-level members of government who can't get, in, who can't go to a normal AA meeting because they would not be anonymous. Uh, and then, ironically, that is an issue that is brought up at this AA meeting, where one of the judges or you know whoever, one of the guys basically says like, "Hey, uh, Leo can't come to the meeting no more because people are going to get suspicious." if they see Leo walk into the same door once a week, uh, not noticing that he has the vice president right next to him, who is also doing the exact same thing as Leo. <laughs> like, oh, okay, so why are we... Why is that a problem? And he was like, and so the, the guy is like, he can just go to a normal meeting. And the other guys are like, are you fucking kidding? No, he can't. The press would be there. And they'd be like, oh my God, the chief of staff said an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And, well, like, and fucking like any of the other, as we were saying before, it's like any of these other guys can't go. The press would also be there, right? Like, because they're like high-ranking senators, right? This is the whole point of this high-up meeting that Hoynes has fucking Secret Service looking out for, and no press know about and everything. And yet, all of a sudden, Leo's the big problem and has to, has to be thrown out. It comes out of nowhere for no reason. It's, it's just extremely biz- clumsy. It's like, bizarre, and, and it, it's just there so that Hoynes can bail out Leo. Which will then set up, like, the further Leo Hoynes relationship that we're going to see in this episode. So Hoynes can say, like, hey, this is my meeting, Leo stays. And, like, like you know, help out Leo. Yeah, and, like, if I was to take a broader perspective on it, it's like, they, it looks like, and I doubt they are deliberately doing it, but it looks like the writers are trying to pave the road for, like, a broader reconciliation of the Hoynes-Leo-Bartlett dynamic because yes. Hoyne, Bar- Bartlett and Hoyne's pretty like they don't they butt heads a lot 
You yeah, know, they bought every, every time we've seen Hoynes beforehand, it's been more of an adversarial relationship between him mm-hmm. and the Bartlett White House, uh, of which he is technically a part. Well, and you know, even even as of as recently as the last time we recorded, it's like you know, you have this Hoynes represents like the conservative, feely red family, red state yes. side of the the administration. Bartlett pretty sort of cynically utilizes him Correct. to appeal to the more conservative parts of the coalition that they try to assemble. And so like that is fundamentally a conflict there. And here we have it just sort of ham-handedly being like, no, you're good, Leo. Yeah. At, at a fake, like right. a, a completely a, a ginned up opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Like it comes out of nowhere for no reason. And it seems just to be there to let, you know, Hoynes bail out Leo so now Leo will feel, like, good towards Hoynes and then facilitate the things that happen later in the episode. Well, and, I mean, do you want to talk about that yeah, now? Let's just because, go, like, it's yeah, not let's attached just go. to any... Like, it's not attached to any issue This episode's in the episode. structure is so, like, boring that we can just kind of... <laughs> I feel like going wherever with it. So, yeah, let's just roll. Well, so Hoynes, uh, the, the reason, ostensible reason that we have Hoynes early is that his bill is go basically going on the chopping block. Correct. Um, a bill that was going to do uh, in internet infrastructure funding for the uh, for rurals. Uh, for yeah, rural it's poor. it's like it's actually a it's good like bill. It's like the rural electrification. Yeah, it's actually project. it's actually a good bill, uh, and it seems like Coins was actually working on something good, and it also clearly is something that he wanted to eventually campaign on, mm-hmm. and uh, to be able to say like, hey, rurals, look at me, I got I got you internet, vote for me. I'm Hoynes, Hoynes 2018 or whatever, whatever whatever (laughs) alternate weird year he'd eventually run in the uh, West Wing universe. So yeah, yeah. so So his bill's on the chopping block and they send Sam over to break him the bad news of the bill being on the chopping block because they just found out about it. Uh, And then to get Sam to help Hoynes, you know, do what they have to to save the bill, Um, which... Hoynes' first instinct is to say, oh, well, I could just take my name off of it, and then the Republicans will be happy enough that they'll that they'll be cool with passing it. Well, and, and at that point, that was the goal of Sam and Josh. Like, you see Sam and Josh kind of collude initially about right. it. And, like, that is the explicit goal that they get to. It's like, Correct. you got to take his name off of it. And they think Sam goes to him completely prepared to battle it out with right, him to have a big scream out fight about like oh no but it's my bill and blah 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 and Hoynes just almost immediately is like yeah no problem <laughs> yeah and so we get this weird well and we get tim matheson gets a chance to shine with this like soliloquy i, I will say i enjoyed here. him a lot in this episode yeah and so he does a great job and so this actually just the even the initial setup for it, his character, which to be fair, okay, some good writing, like throws Sam for a loop, sort of, and then throughout the rest of the episode, the relationship with Hoynes, Sam, Leo, Bartlett, uh-huh. all of this Everyone, stuff is thrown for a is, loop. It sh- shifts a lot, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, so eventually, it, it's definitely like Hoynes is like shaking things up. I guess is really kind of the 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 message of the Hoynes plot. I guess. Yeah, because eventually he, you know, the, the reason that they get to, like, they, they talk through it for a while and they say, uh, you know, we're thinking about taking you, not thinking about taking you, like, there, there's rumblings of taking you off the ticket in order to win for the election. For the next election, right, because the and, electoral math looks bad. Yeah, and then they're also, like, they sort of plan on, 
you can see the calculus going on. It's like, oh, we're going to use his alcoholism as a wedge against him. Right. And then Leo goes to Hoynes eventually and says, hey, um, I need you, Hoynes, to tell the president about your alcoholism. And Hoynes is just like, you never you, you fucking, fucking told him tell yourself? Him? <laughs> yeah. I love how shocked he is that Leo did. <laughs> He's yeah, like, Leo's like, well, why would what, I? What we're, the, we're in AA together. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do the words that we say at the beginning of this meeting mean if yeah. I'm out here a- telling Alcoholics people... Anonymous works both ways. <laughs> you know, you don't go blabbing who, who was all at your meeting. <laughs> well, and so that moment of trust and legitimate, like, being... You see Tim Matheson, again, doing a great job being, like, legitimately yes. touched by the confidence... Yeah. In which Leo holds him, and so they go to the present together, and they tell him, and Bartlett's like, "Holy shit! You know, when was your last drink?" And <laughs> this is a great so clip funny. Here, yeah. actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna clip this. For how long? I'm sorry. How long have you been in recovery? My last drink. It was the year I was 22. Did you say 22? Yes, sir. You haven't had a drink since you were 22. That's right. I didn't start drinking till I was 25. What the hell do you guys count as? I know, but there's a history in my family, and I had a few experiences in college. I liked beer a lot, so I started going to meetings, and I'm pretty sure if I stopped. 22? Yes, sir. You and James Bond ought to team up. 22? Yeah. You haven't had a drink since you were 22? Right. Ulysses S. Grant would have slapped your face. He did once. (laughs) because <laughs> there's consistently this reaction to the of like being like <laughs> okay is that really alcoholic uh, i'm not gonna question it but like yeah. it seems a little uh, it's it's almost presumptive that yeah. you would be an alcoholic if you had a couple beers once and we're like uh my family has this history so i'm never I, drinking guys again. i really like this beer like i really <laughs> like it and i think if i kept drinking i would just drink Eighty thousand of them and just and die. <laughs> Hurt my family and fall off a bridge and die. Like, but it's 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 really touching. And I think honestly, this is for me. This was the best part, or in good faith, the best part of the episode because these characters actually get a chance to sort of be personal with each other. Yes. And you see Tim Matheson shine through, and their interaction, the three of them, is actually pretty, like, it's quite touching. It's so. good. It was a tie between this and the Donna subplot, um, which I'll, I'll bring <laughs> up you know, later on. But um, this, let's take a break for now, and then we can talk about the other subplots in this particular episode. We're back. Uh, so let's talk about Charlie Young and the salary <laughs> he makes as presidential Jesus body man. Because holy <laughs> shit. So d- the reason we find out this information, and I was looking forward to this episode. This was one of the ones I'm looking forward to when we thought of doing this project from yeah. the get-go. I was like, God, I can't wait till we get to the Charlie's <laughs> Taxes episode and I can dissect how little money they think Charlie Young fucking makes. 
uh, because holy shit. So first off, it's a very fun, cute little setup with Bartlett is doing Charlie's taxes for him on the computer and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, they're even e-filing because uh, this is 2001 and you could e-file. Um, and uh, he's de- debating whether he wants the standard deduction or the itemized deduction. And like they're having a lot of fun with it. Uh, I really like how fun Bartlett is being in this episode, and Martin Sheen is clearly just having a lot of fun, where they have they have a lot of fun with, like, the pay-up, uh, you don't even yeah. need a stamp, uh, <laughs> and, and, like, the constantly holding their hands out to be like, give me the money, like, give me the tax money, <laughs> you got to a couple, me, directly, I'm the president. You got a couple bills in your pocket, hand them over. <laughs> he orders the, secure, the secret service guards to, like, look over him and, like, mm-hmm. help him find his pockets, boys. <laughs> it's very funny. Uh, but anyway, so while they're debating all this, we find out that Charlie's salary is $35,000 a year. Uh, this is 2001, mind you, so keep in mind with inflation and whatnot, that's more like, I don't know, 45 k nowadays? I think it's something 50. Like that. Yeah. 50? Okay, sure. So, you know, that's not as bad, but still, uh, let us consider that Charlie does not work 40 hours a week. Uh, as we have seen, he works seven days a week. Uh, often 16-plus-hour days. So if we figure that he works, I don't know, 100-hour weeks on average, I think it's a safe estimate for this kid who we constantly see at, like, 3 a.m. still by the president's side. Uh, He's making approximately $7 an hour (laughs) to be uh, the president... Of the United States body man to to be with the to be in close proximity to the most powerful man on the planet constantly, basically twenty four hours a day. Uh, he is only away for like the four hours the president sleeps. Uh, is basically the only time Charlie is not by his side. Uh, and yeah, he is making seven dollars an hour in West Wing world, which is a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, no oh, shit. So I looked up the real life numbers because I was curious. Uh, Obama's body man made about a hundred and two thousand, <laughs> which is like uh, kind of actually what I expect for yes, this kind of position. Exactly. Like, you do not want to pay your body man seven dollars an hour, or some asshole with a hundred thousand dollars is going to come along and say, "Hey, uh, why don't you poison the president? Here's a hundred grand." <laughs> <laughs> and when we all know how easily even like legislators are bought off, can you imagine? Yeah. The amount of access that you would get. That a minimum wage body <laughs> <Yeah>. man. <laughs> Jesus like, H. Christ. So yeah, they probably should be making like low six figures. Is probably a reasonable salary for that kind of thing. Uh, thankfully, actual, if Charlie Young were real, he would not be making $35,000 a year. I looked up W's because this is supposed to be taking place during the W years in theory. And W's body man made something like, I don't know, 80000 90000 You know, again, a reasonable salary one would expect for a position that important yeah well and i think um the to your point of like this not being real it's sort of to go a little bit more meta on it it calls into question why they dedicate so much time to sort of an off the cuff interaction here that's mainly played for laughs about how poorly charlie is paid well because it comes all the way back around so they have this whole bit where they talk about economists and like, oh, we really would have liked if you had spent last year's rebate on on a restaurant or, go, or travel. Uh, as He's like, I paid off my visa bill, which you bring up the great point, is consumer spending. Yeah. It's just a <laughs> delayed consumer spending. Uh, he's paying off the restaurant or the trip that he took three months ago. Yeah. Um, 
So anyway, so he, in his mind, he's he thought he was going to get a $700 tax refund, which he was going to spend on a DVD player, because <laughs> this episode's incredibly dated, and it's from when the Fast and the Furious 1, remember that the big heist in Fast and Furious 1 is they're stealing combo DVD VHS players <laughs> off a truck, because you know why? Charlie Young says he's going to spend his whole $700 tax rebate on one DVD player. <laughs> Whew, I remember <laughs> those <boy>. days. Um, <laughs> to be fair, it does have MP3 playback. Well, yeah, and that was that was you know that's Sorkin being like, yeah, I know what's up. Like I'm a cool, I know I'm technology. a cool techno guy. You know, he does drop Google in this episode as well. He does. Uh, yep. Jo- Josh tells Donna to go Google someone, and this is in 2001 when that was not a common phrase. So that was kind of neat. Um, but yeah, to keep it back on Charlie, so the, there's sort of a moral to the whole Charlie arc. It's not just laughs, although we do get a lot of laughs out of it. The moral is that he ends up uh, donating about $1,500 of that measly salary to various charities like uh, the Police Fund and Boys and Girls Club of Washington, D.C. Uh, and so it turns out he's not getting a $700 tax rebate. He owes $400, which he ends up paying, and he actually does give to Bartlett, and he doesn't need the stamp. <laughs> yeah, he just cuts, cuts the president a check. He, he just literally cuts the president a check for his taxes, which is very adorable to me. Yeah. Um, and so because he was such a nice man and donated to charity, Bartlett buys him the DVD player that he was going to buy with his tax refund. And aw, don't we have a nice little heartwarming moment of, of proxy father and son. Yes. But, and again, that sort of underscores the politics of writing this at all. In that right. the conclusion is that, oh, because you're such a good little person individually i individually will reward will reward you will deign to do this for you out of the goodness of my patrician heart this is very president god king kind of thing like this is you know god dad king all in one kind of thing here rewarding the individual for his individual effort yeah in spite of the fact that he's clearly getting individually fucked by this administration, yeah. by the who are paying him essentially Gar- garbage wages. Yeah, like not not to get put too fun a point on it, slave labor wages. Yeah. on this, <laughs> he he's literally sub minimum wage. If you think if you factor that he works often more than a hundred hours a week, then it's probably sub minimum wage. Like and so yeah, I just like I don't know. I mean to put to put a personal point on this, it's like I had a summer job. So this if this is in two thousand one, I was seventeen. Mm. I had a summer job where I worked for, uh, like, I worked for a boat shop because I lived on okay. near Lake Michigan, like a little sailboat dinghy store, and I got paid more than Charlie did. <laughs> like, I was, I was a kid who was like hoping that he wouldn't break the combo lathe when he turned it on. Keep in mind, Charlie has the most top secret security clearance. In the government possible. And that alone is probably worth six fucking figures. Yeah, no shit. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> like, he knows all this stuff. And can you imagine he, how vulnerable he, that is? He's probably gone into the situation room a couple times. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so anyway, I find that whole subplot very interesting. Like I said, I was entirely looking forward to this episode from the moment we launched this project. There's a couple other moments I've got tucked away in the back of my brain somewhere where I'm like, oh, I can't wait till we get to this <laughs> bit. Uh, and I'll remember them as I see them. Uh, I also want to talk about, you brought up that there's a lot of staff sort of abuse in general in this episode. Yeah. 
A lot of assistants get yelled at. Uh, like condescended to as well. Like not. Yeah. It's and it, that's almost even worse. Like I would almost be outright just kind of yelled at by my boss than being like for making a mistake. Yeah, yeah. No one's making a mistake here. They're just being condescended to, even though they're doing their jobs just fine. <sighs> yeah. Like just. Yeah, so that's annoying. Toby does uh, it, and Josh does it to Donna. Margaret oh, says wanted- the line. Oh, uh, Leo tries to order Margaret home, and Margaret says the line, "I don't go home till you go home." Which, uh, honey, no, you need to go home yeah. when your shift is done. <laughs> Please, don't don't do don't do unpaid labor. Don't scab on yourself here, girl. <laughs> yeah, come on, you're better than that, Margaret. Um, hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of staff abuse, and then we have another sort of heartwarming subplot with Donna that I'm not going to spend too much time on. Basically, she finds out that one of her teachers is retiring, and it was one of like the really good teachers, the one that meant a lot to her. Uh, and so she asked Josh to ask the president to see if he can do like a thing to honor the teacher. And she comes up with the idea of a presidential proclamation, which is probably too big to do for one individual <laughs> teacher. Which Josh kind of, like, you know, has to break the news of, like, look, we're not going to do a presidential proclamation for your, like, social studies teacher or whatever. English teacher, my mistake. Uh, because her and the president... So, uh, the the heartwarming resolution is that the president calls the teacher uh, and brings Donna into the Oval Office. And they have, like, a, a three-way speakerphone conversation together where Donna's like, look, I'm in the Oval Office with... I'm standing next to the president and I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. Oh. And it's, it's very heartwarming and it tugs on the heartstrings in all the right way and all that. Um, but, again, it really means nothing other than it's just like, oh, this is a cool thing we can do in the West Wing because we have the president on it. Yeah, and it gives the president a chance to be a nerd again, which is kind of... There's a lot of the president being a nerd in this yeah. episode. He's which, nerd okay, hardcore. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. Like, I'm a fucking nerd, so, like, good. Yeah. But also, again, you, you a lot of this is reduced to these individual morality plays where it's just like, uh... Right. This is... And it's like, it's nice and it's sweet or whatever, but it's forgotten about by the time the episode's over. And... Uh, I know we keep saying this over and over again, but really nothing happens on this fucking episode. Well, and I mean, uh, technically a truck full of nuclear waste crashed, but A, we don't get to see it, and B, the resolution is boring and mostly happens off screen. And, you know, we're utilizing this thing like this teacher, whereas every other time education policy is brought up in this episode, it's talking about charter schools and opportunity mm-hmm. and testing yeah. and school choice. And it's like... What? Yeah. So what the fuck? Again, you're gonna do this nice thing for this one lady, but you're gonna just right. Con- but we're keep... not gonna talk about like teacher pay or or benefits teacher or, unions or like or education yeah. funding or any. <laughs> and no, we don't talk about the systemic. It's just like Toby with the homeless man. Toby helped the one homeless man, therefore homelessness is solved. Yeah. And Toby's and we a don't nice have to person. Worry about it, right? Uh, hmm. Okay, so there's a couple more things that we want to get to because this segment's going a little long, so let's take a break and we can uh, get to the nuclear fuel fire. What is she thinking? Too much uncertainty. Why can't she give some sort of sign? But you know, and I know, a thing or two about loyalty. But that girl don't pay no mind.
So there are a couple other little things I just wanted to make sure to touch on. The big, like, the big crisis um, that <laughs> works its way into the Oval Office this episode is this um, accident of a truck hauling nuclear flasks, which are, you know, storage containers for spent nuclear fuel rods. Um, they, they end up, there's a truck that crashes in the tunnel, and the, the insinuation that they eventually get around to with a couple of coincidental other occurrences is that it was a deliberate right. truck crash right. to somehow, you know, cause an incident or like an act of terrorism right. is what the implication they, is. They talk about getting Homeland Security involved or and like, you know... Yeah, when they like, bring him, they're like, "Really, a truck crash just happened to happen?" And then, like, the conclusion is actually, "Yeah, a truck just—it just crashed. <laughs> it was an accident." Well, and there's a brief moment where the president is condescending to Leo about having known all this information an hour or thirty minutes half an ago, hour before, yeah. half an hour before him, and then Leo goes, "Oh, so you know about the other truck, right?" And probably <laughs> goes, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> because another nuclear flask hauler apparently was like stolen. Or something, but they're completely unrelated, it turns out, and actually this isn't deliberate. Right, it was just an accident. (laughs) Yeah, so given the time that this was being filmed and the spin-up of... Right, post-9-11. Post-9-11 and the the new war in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's like they mention a specific phrase, depleted uranium, that is associated, and rightly so, with war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan by military because... Depleted uranium is a very specific um, metal that they used in like rounds, round, like cannon yeah. rounds, right? Tank rounds, yeah, in military equipment. It's it's denser than most everything else. It has extreme penetrating power. It catches on fire spontaneously when it impacts. So like it does all these things. It is not at all related to spent depleted nuclear fuel waste. rods Correct. that happen to be made from. Uranium. It's a completely Correct. different subject. Like, yes, both technically use the element uranium. Right. But, but on the spectrum, are, it's yeah, very divorced. Nothing to do with one another and have completely different dangerous side effects. Yeah. And um, so, like, the, the concern with the spent nuclear fuel is that there are re- other residual elements that are much worse than your average uranium thing. It's like right. there's going to be plutonium left over. There's right. going to be That's- cesium that gets out if it catches on fire. And so... All these things are the implication I think the show makes, frankly, a lot of times when it invokes anything to do with the nuclear industry. And as a as a child of the 90s, like the association is that any time the word nuclear or uranium is invoked, your brain immediately like snaps to, oh, nuclear meltdown right. slash terrorism. kaboom. Or, and slash or terrorism. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. I mean, frankly... The concern at a at a very uh, kind of basic level with an accident of this, the type that they described, is just that there is a risk of like heavy metal poisoning. There's a risk of fire. There's a risk of distributing these radioactive elements across a given area because of smoke mm-hmm. and like how the fire burns and whatever. It has, frankly, very little to do with your stereotypical like, uh-oh, meltdown right. or uh-oh, stealing this material to make a bomb right. Again, type the, of yeah. concern. The problems with, with things like meltdowns and things like that is that it, wind would then spread the results of the meltdown. It's less so like the thing itself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and so particularly with a crash like this, you know, you're more worried about environmental side effects and, and yeah. the spread of these materials. 
<laughs> so I've literally looked it up because they reference, um, and I was, I was, you know, doing curiosity Googling, and they reference a tunnel fire that apparently exceeded the temperature rating on these flasks by a given amount of degrees that, Nuclear make them, that would fuel make them fail. can't melt <laughs> tunnel beams. <laughs> well, you see, the beams that let make me, up Let the me tunnel. go to my Glenn Beck chalkboard here and show you that nuclear fuel only melts at 1475 Fahrenheit, and these tunnel beams were cleared for 1500 Fahrenheit. And so this tunnel would not be in any danger... What's going on? It the was Idaho, rigged. The Idaho fuel truck crash was an inside <laughs> job. <laughs> so, and apparently, this the the data point that they bring up references a real event that actually happened in Baltimore, like nearly on the eve of when this was being filmed. Right. So the writers picked this up very quickly because there was yep. a crash that occurred in a train tunnel in Baltimore called the Howard Street Tunnel mm-hmm. um, that. It wasn't related to nuclear or anything. It was just a bunch of other chemicals <laughs> that happened to be in trains that crashed in this tunnel. And a fire burned, it says, 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit and on average 900. But it fucking burned for five days in downtown Baltimore. Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, like... Holy shit. And the fact that they reference this as sort of a touch point is actually really interesting because clearly, you know, writers are up on like current events mm-hmm. in Baltimore. It's 20 miles away from D.C. So, mm-hmm. you know, in their mm-hmm. wheelhouse. Or yeah, whatever. I'm sure that all their papers reported about it and whatnot. And they're like, hey, we should put that into the show, but add some nuclear because that makes it interesting. But yeah, like CJ touches this off by saying the phrase depleted uranium. And it's like. This this specific set of words triggers a specific set of reactions. Yeah. On frankly, on people on the left here, and it's important to distance those concepts. Yeah, this from isn't each the, other. this isn't the war crime type of depleted uranium. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So then the final thing that we have to talk about is Toby's weird subplot with uh, this guy Bill Fisher. So. You, you said you had trouble understanding this. I kind of did, too. I think I finally pieced it together, so I'll give you my best. Uh, so Toby is upset because this Bill Fisher guy uh, came out and announced some new policy about, I forget, uh, loans, small business loans, so, something like that. Loans. It was definitely loans. Uh, so, um and it's going to be something that he, this Bill Fisher guy wants to campaign on to become New Jersey governor, basically. And so Toby is, uh, feels like he's pulling like a, a you're, you know, you're a small fish in a big pond and you need to be reminded of that. So he, he pulls this guy into the communications office to basically dress him down and be like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? Only the president gets to announce like big federal policy. You're trying to like ride his coattails and he'll back you up, but you have to back him up, and he has to get reelected. And it's kind of favor trading, essentially, and with a little mix of keeping him in line. Huh. It's so, all kind of stupid and pointless. <laughs> like it's, most, it's, most pres- it's presuming that this guy's making like a power play, sort of, but a minor one. Uh, okay. As Toby keeps telling him over and over, like this is too small for the president, and uh, and. So it's like this guy tried to tried to make a move, and okay. basically Toby is telling him like, "A, your move was pathetic. B, be loyal, and then we will be loyal in return." 
Okay. I mean, it's, that's about it. There's really not much to it. There's nothing it's just that weird interesting. That they, yeah, they dedicate the like, actors a lot of time to Toby. Toby doesn't get like a big moment out of it or whatever. It's just weird. It just feels like I don't know. We have to give Toby something to do. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, can't be an ensemble cast if they're not in all the Indeed. episodes. It's a shame CJ didn't have more to do in this one because she's only used like three times to just bring up the nuclear thing and then she gets whisked away. Uh, yeah. any, anything else you have to talk about on this episode? I think we're pretty nah, much we're pretty much through. So out. let's take a brief break and we can wrap up. <laughs> So actually, during our break, I found I remembered a couple other notes that I made that are real quick. A, you can shake or stir a drink whenever the fuck you want. Oh right, fuck, we did. Fuck you. Put, for, put, put the clip in. Put the clip in. On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Can I tell you what's messed up about James Bond? Nothing. Shaken, not stirred, will get you cold water with a dash of gin and dry vermouth. The reason you stir it with a special spoon is so not to chip the ice. James is ordering a weak martini and being snooty about it. Uh, take what? that, I, James Bond, yeah. fictional character. I have owned you. <laughs> yeah. Ian, Ian Fleming, how dare you write a man that does different things did, that I do. By the way, I've heard all sorts of weird, dumb stories about like, no, you see, he orders it shaken because that way if it's poisoned, he'll, he'll taste it and he'll know the poison is there or whatever. Like, whatever. <sighs> I think he just prefers shaken. Stop trying to read too much into it. Like, and, and frankly, again, technically... You can shake a drink if you want it to be colder. Cool. If you have ice cubes, it increases the amount of surface of the area of the ice that's exposed to the drink itself. It cools it down. Yes, it waters it down, but it makes it colder. Just, that's, that's, that's fucking it. it. That's, that's it. it. It's like, not, you stop it's talking not, about it's it. It's not that much weaker. <laughs> and, let's see, so the other thing... <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the writing of words on pieces of paper and handing them oh to people... Oh, my God! Like, this is the most stereotypical... Okay, um, performative, okay. yeah. fake. Um, where am I going? The fake, o- profound. Yeah. thing. It is yeah. not. I. The only time it works, and it worked perfectly when they did this with Donna a few episodes ago, is when it's a salary number, and we don't get to see it, and our brain gets to imagine as big a number as we want. That's fine and great. This is not that. This is, he writes down four words on a piece of paper, and we get to find out what the four words are like a minute later. Yeah, So seriously. it loses all the fucking drama. <laughs> like, what? what's even, like, I, yeah, it's Why just not so just demonstrative. Say it? Why not just say it to his face? There was no point of writing it down and handing him the piece of paper so they can look at it meaningfully, other than just like this cheap, cheap attempt of mining more drama out of it. It would have yeah, been for- more dramatic had he just said it. Yeah, for for those of you who didn't watch this, which you shouldn't, um, right. basically there's a scene where Hoynes asks why he why is he still why, why is, is he, he still, still on, on the board? ticket? Yeah. and Bartlett writes down because I could die because I might die. Those yeah. are the four, he says four words and then he makes a big show of writing it down on a piece of paper and handing it to him. And then, like and I said, we find it out a minute later when when Hoynes or Leo hands the note to Josh and Josh reads it aloud for us, <laughs> the viewer, to finally um, comprehend. So it was all really pointless and meaningless. <laughs> and like, the, it's this weird sort of 
presumption of profundity in the fact that, oh, we're talking about death here. But, like, that is the vice president's right. only function. Correct. And it is understood. <laughs> yes. Like, it is, like, so how is this... The, even the job's in, title is literally a heartbeat away from the presidency. We all understand mm-hmm. that the VP is there in case the president dies. That is, like, the main role of vice president is to take over, God forbid, should something happen. But, yeah, the, it's... Uh, yeah, like, apparently we can't talk about it. Like, I, I think it would have been much more dramatic had Bartlett just said when Hoynes asked him the question, because I might die, yeah, out loud. Because- and then we could have that hang there in the room for a minute. And, like, you could get the reaction of each of the... Of Leo and Hoynes to that statement. And it would be much, much better than this stupid note bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and it's... Yeah, so... And like, um, like and you, you complicated it for no reason. Keep it simple, stupid. You know, this was just... Have him say the words. Why did you complicate it? And I, the last thing... I can't remember why they referenced General Pulaski at some point. Where oh, it's like uh, came to... that's the last person who got a presidential proclamation. Ah, yes, in the context of the, te- of the English of the teacher. Of the teacher, right. Um, so the important thing to note about General Pulaski, hello, I went to school in Illinois where we celebrate Casimir Pulaski Day every year. <laughs> General Pulaski, based on recent archaeological records, was likely a woman. Wow. And the context of that being like you, you dredge up this military leader, which, you know, in our culture is presumptively a man. Almost always. A male figure, yeah. almost always. And you sort of draw these parallels with a, a traditionally female role of a teacher and right. a female character who is asking after that, um, like the honorific being accorded to a teacher. Uh-huh. And she's like, no, you motherfuckers, you actually picked the... The, the one that inverts that stereotype here because Casimir yeah. Pulaski was probably a woman. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, but uh, she probably did more for the country than just teach social studies, to be fair. That's, that's true. <laughs> well, you know, then that, that's, that's fine. So, yeah, um, this episode had a lot of little piddly shit. Yeah, a lot, a lot of, like, funny moments. Like I said, Sheen is kind of having fun, and their character of Bartlett is sort of having fun throughout this whole episode. It's a more lighthearted episode overall, even mm-hmm, though there's a, definitely. a crisis going on. It's a very minor crisis, and it's not like, oh my god, World War Three or whatever. So, um, and it's, it's very sort of... This is a general kind of, like, day-in-the-life episode. There's no big plot. There's no, you know, there's nothing important to any arc going on or anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, and yeah, it was, it's fine, but forgettable. Just, you know, very solid, like mediocre five out of 10 kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But so, I yeah, think that about that's it. That's about it. Excellent. Well, thanks again for listening. Uh, we're happy to be back, uh, making some content cause Lord knows there's nothing else to do right now. <laughs> uh, I hope you're all staying safe out there with the incredibly crazy times we're, we're living through right now. Uh, you know, wash your hands, do all that stuff, stay safe. And um, next time we'll be back with uh, the next episode. Uh, technically, the next episode is actually the, in the Netflix order, is the documentary episode that is goes behind the scenes and talks with a bunch of the writers and stuff. We're not going to do a full podcast about that, but we will mention it a little bit in our next episode, which is going to be about the episode entitled Enemies, Foreign, and Domestic. Because there are several domestic enemies who are interviewed in that documentary. <laughs> yeah, there's, oh, there sure are. 
Uh, and we'll, we'll be happy to talk about that next time. Uh, but as always, you can, uh, if you, we love to hear listener feedback, feel free to drop us a comment, uh, in our thread. Uh, if you found the show a different way, you can email the show at oh. the worst 69 at gmail.com. Which is nice. And you know what else is nice is, um, I'll put a plug in here, you should go register at Bread and Roses if you haven't already. Yeah, check out uh, breadandroses.net. The N, it's an N, not the word N. I'll put it in the notes. Yeah, we'll put it in the notes. Uh, But yeah, check it out. Um, It's a cool leftist forum space. I don't want to get too much into it, but uh, it's pretty neat. It's a cool little community that we're trying to build. So definitely give it a a look. And... Chances are, if you're listening to this show, you would be right at home. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye bye. All the money you ask for, but don't ask me to come on along.